I am in coaster town. So how, how many? <laughs> so I'm at a, around 750 roller wow, coasters. I need wow. to uh, to update from the summer. My chiropractor is not pleased with me, but it is a personal passion. The world beyond. Emotion is of tomorrow. Brought to you by Michelle Mack. Hello again and welcome back to the very exciting second part of my talk with life entertainment expert Mike Sakuri. If you missed part one, be sure to listen to that after this as well. In our first talk, we got to know Mike already and discussed the future of film, television, music and much more. Welcome back, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me back. Let's dive right in and talk about the wonderful world, my world as well, of attractions and life entertainment. How did you get so passionate about location-based entertainment? I was very fortunate as a young child. My parents took me to theme parks, museums, live theater, and other attractions. In the 1990s, I went to attractions like Star Trek, The Experience in Las Vegas, and Terminator 2 3D at Universal Studios. And I knew then that that's what I really wanted to do. My son also became a roller coaster enthusiast at a young age, so we traveled all over the world visiting theme parks including Europa Park. And I decided that since I loved it so much, that's what I should do full time. So what was your home park back in the days? My home park? Yes. Was Disneyland. Disneyland Anaheim? Disneyland Anaheim, but also, you know, being in Southern California, I was fortunate that we also had Universal and Six Flags Magic Mountain and Knott's Berry Farm and SeaWorld. Uh, so we had a lot of parks to choose from. So you started with the best Disney right next door. That's great. So you're obviously an expert um, when it comes to location-based, but also attractions in theme parks and theme parks in general. What, for you, makes an attraction great? To me, it's all about guest experience. I think great attractions are unique in some way. They're entertaining. They're well-maintained. They have to provide good value. Europa Park is obviously a fantastic example of this. And even in terms of individual attractions, using Europa Park as an example, I think about the Arthur ride, where this is IP that I personally was unfamiliar with, but has fantastic storytelling, unique ride mechanics. It's just a great ride that's completely repeatable. And those are the kinds of things that I look for in an attraction. Thank you so much for the flowers. But um, I mean... Talking about IP, you just mentioning, um, you didn't know the IP of Arthur. Obviously, Americans do have a different point of view than we Europeans. I mean, obviously, the American parks are much more IP-based. How important is an IP for you to an attraction? IP can certainly add to an attraction. And you know, Disneyland and Universal, for example, are all about IP, and that is certainly a big part of their success. But we also see huge success elsewhere in the world with no IP or locally created IP, that an attraction that's great and entertaining with no IP will win out over one with IP that's not very good, you know, every day of the week. So for the IP to really be meaningful, it needs to have great story and connect with the guests and, and be uh, authentic to that IP. About what do you think first about uh, when you're planning a great attraction? I mean, you were mentioning it's the overall experience, but what is your process if you go ahead um, planning a location-based or any other attraction? Is there something you've wanted to incorporate or to build, but it never quite fit in so far? Well, in terms of planning a great attraction, there are lots of factors. I think 
at the beginning, what kind of connection am I trying to establish with the guests and what emotions are we looking to evoke? Do we want them to be excited, frightened, thrilled, amused, happy? Uh, do we have a strong creative concept and do we have the right partners who can execute on that concept? Who is my target audience? Is this right for the region and the specific location? Does the opportunity justify the budget? So these are all pieces of the puzzle that we need to put together. And then we also look at feasibility studies, market research. In the case of IP, we need to have buy-in from those IP owners. But then you're also figuring out how to fabricate, operate, have the right consumer products, the right food and beverage. We need to create an excellent holistic experience. In terms of something I've wanted to incorporate. I love magic and I have yet to work on an attraction that incorporates magic or illusions, but I'm sure I will. And um, how important is your gut feeling about something? I mean, obviously in sports, you have like a great soccer team. You talk about tactics, analytics, you're looking at your soccer team, how you want to play the game. But then you just have that phenomenal pass being played by intuition and by your gut feeling. Is that something which is also important when you create an IP, that you have a gut feeling how the attraction should look like and how is the ideal of it? Or is it more like a technical planning? We have to do a feasibility study, tell a story. And um, how much gut feeling is in the process of creating a great attraction? It's, it's an excellent question. I think data has become increasingly important, but you also don't want to fall into the trap of relying completely on data because that can take the emotion out of it. And while these decisions should not always be made on a gut feeling, because sometimes there's bias and you need to really understand your audiences, you know, the great operators have a sense of what is going to work and what isn't. But they also talk to other people, whether it be kids or people of different demographics, or really to get a sense of what people like. So I think it's important not to rely entirely on data and to use your gut, but also to have multiple viewpoints to make sure that you're creating something that's not just for you, but is something that everybody else is going to enjoy as well. Perfect. Um, I mean, obviously, you are a advisor. And uh, what is something your clients frequently misunderstand? Is there anything, a problem you're always falling into when you're advising people? Hmm. Uh, you know, I find that operations is an area where many attractions fall short. That they might have a great attraction in terms of the creative, but that it's not necessarily run very well. And some of these attractions need better training of their staff, better wayfinding, better guest flow, and all those things are really integral to the experience. But let me, I mean, you're touching a point here with me. Um, could that also be a um, problem when using um, VR headsets on a coaster? that some of the parks are badly operated, or do you think it's just an afraidness of using new technology um, on a roller coaster? The reason I'm asking this question is that uh, we at Europa Park do have Coastiality, a great business model of using VR headsets. Now, since nearly eight years, unfortunately, our biggest attractions has burned down, so um, we're losing that revenue, but still we have Valerian and the Euroset. Um, and I'm sometimes wondering, because it's such a great business for us using VR headsets in a roller coaster, why not every roller coaster in the world have a VR headset um, implemented on their ride? And now listening to you, do you think it's an operational issue or is it a fear of new technology? So the first time I ever uh, rode a VR coaster, coincidentally, was at Europa Park. 
And I did the two that you had there at the time. And it was a great experience. And I think, to your point, that was a mix of the technology and operations. I've had some good experiences at other parks, some not so good. Some of that had to do with the design, that some of them were kind of rough and perhaps there was lag or that it was just not integrated well or the coaster was too intense to really enjoy the VR. But also to your point, some of it was operations, that a lot of these parks have seasonal employees who may have had very little training and are not really fully aware and have the full capability of what it requires for guests to have a great experience with VR. So I feel that's certainly a big part of why we don't see that technology as widespread as as we do. Uh, it does come down to operations. So to all um, theme park operators around the world, <laughs> if you want to see a greatly operated VR attraction, come to Europa Park and we help you making a great operation out of your roller coaster, including VR. So that was now my advertisable space. Is there any attraction that you love despite, because it's not meeting the standards of well-made, but it's even better? What are your current favorite attraction, or do you have several great attractions you love? Uh, sure. Well, I go to hundreds of attractions a year. And so, so are you in coaster counts? That's not the, the question to ask. I am in coaster counts. So so how, how many? <laughs> so I'm at a, around 750 roller wow. coasters. I need, wow. to, uh, I need to update from the summer. My chiropractor is not pleased with me, but it is a personal passion. Uh, which, uh, which rank are you with 750 coasters? It's uh, within the 100? I think I'm around 250th. Oh, my gosh. Uh, in the world. We have one guy in the park, I think you might have met him, Patrick Marks. I think he's your competitor, your German competitor on the coast account, no? I believe he's done more than I have. Have to ask him tomorrow. And I certainly, <laughs> I have friends who've done over 2,000 roller coasters, um, but that's, that's a very small club. But in terms of favorite attractions, I have many, and they span a very broad range. So off the top of my head, I love House on the Rock in Spring Green, Wisconsin, which is this crazy house with extreme architecture, tens of thousands of items ranging from these live uh, music performances, like these giant music boxes, to a life-size sculpture of a blue whale. It's something that must be seen to be believed. Uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean ride in Shanghai is one of my favorite rides in the world. It has extraordinary theming and storytelling. Uh, the Warner Brothers Studio tour for Harry Potter in England is my favorite behind-the-scenes experience. When I went, there were people from all over the world, many of whom were so happy to be there that literally they burst into tears when they walked in. And that's the kind of emotion I like to see at attractions. Um, but I will say, honestly, my favorite new attraction this year is Adrenaline at Europa Park. Having a seat at a restaurant that is also a ride vehicle and that takes you to different themed environments throughout your meal was completely innovative, entertaining, and took something that's been around forever, going to restaurants and combined it with ride mechanics and media and theming to create a fantastic attraction that I recommend to everybody I know. Thank you for your opinion about those attractions. Talking about our friends at Disney, I mean, we all do love Disney. I mean, I grew up with visiting a lot of Disney parks, even though I haven't been living so close than you did to the original one in Anaheim. But, um, I mean, they do so many things right. Um, being inside the magic, what do you think Disney has that other parks don't? And in a way, what does the Disney parks make so timeless popular amongst all the age groups? 
Well, Disney has the best collection of IP in the world, as we know, and have done a brilliant job of expanding that universe. Uh, virtually everyone is a fan of something Disney owns, and no one, in my opinion, does storytelling better. And the parks are also family-friendly, which really expands that audience. I believe they also, in many ways, own a large portion of the nostalgia market that many adults have fond memories of going to a Disney park or of a Disney character or show from when they were kids. And going back to those parks reminds them of happy times from earlier in their lives. Also, some of the greatest creative minds in the world are at Walt Disney Imagineering, and they also have the budgets to create rides, shows, and the themings that they have dreamed about. And the cast members are also a key part of this, that the people on the ground in the park, there are tens of thousands of them, and many of them are also fans, and they love what they do. So their customer service is excellent, and that's a big part of creating such a wonderful experience. We did talk about the overall experience, obviously, of an attraction, but how much are the surroundings affecting the popularity of an attraction? Could the same attraction ever be a huge success in one location, but it flops in another one? In my opinion, location is critical, especially for smaller attractions where you need to create awareness and uh, can benefit from proximity and foot traffic. For an attraction that's more remote to work, it needs to be like a Europa Park or a Disney Park, where it's so great that people are willing to travel hours to get there. And in terms of something being a big success in one location but flop in another, I think it frequently happens. And sometimes it's due to location, sometimes it's cultural differences, sometimes it's poor timing or uninspiring marketing or poor operations. An example just is uh, the Friends experience in uh, New York. So they have a flagship there of, based on the TV show Friends. It's very good. It's very successful. It's a lot of fun. They just brought it to Los Angeles, but it played in Long Beach, which is about 45 minutes outside of Los Angeles. And I found that most people didn't know about it, that even though it doesn't seem that far for people in Los Angeles, that's far. And we, even though that show has a huge fan base in L.A., by having it a little outside of L.A., it didn't do nearly as well as it would have if it were in central L.A., but then you also get into it's an issue of having real estate that's big enough and affordable enough to have that attraction. So attractions always have to find that balance. That brings me to the next question um, by listening to you. Do you think an attraction really can transport a story or is it just transporting a feeling? I think it can. When done right, you can really feel like you're in that world. And certainly media has allowed that to happen at a more affordable price. It used to be that you'd have to do massive construction to do this world. And certainly we do see that in theme parks and other places. But innovations in media combined with physical elements really help transport you to that space. And you know, using the example of Harry Potter that I mentioned before, but even things like uh, the Pandora or Avatar, the world of Pandora at Disney's Animal Kingdom, people feel like they're in that world and there's something really magical about that. I, I'm, I'm not quite that sure because I think you're transporting a feeling and yet you don't have to fully understand the um, story. I mean, you've been mentioning that you didn't know the IP of Arthur, but still you enjoyed the ride and the environment. I think what they did great in Pandora is like creating that immersive feeling 
and that you feel immersed into the movie. But I don't think that you necessarily have to see in the movie to understand that it's a great ride. So when you would like balance it out, like how much is um, out of 100%, how much is the feeling and the immersion important for a theme park? And how much is the storytelling as such? Is it like a 60-40, 70-30? I mean, where would you lean to? Would you lean to a great story or would you lean to the immersion? Or both? It, it's an excellent question. I think, and you make a great point, I think it is largely balanced. It's probably, you know, 50-50, 60-40 that you know, we're seeing attractions like Meow Wolf or Team Lab that have no IP. They do have storytelling, but it's really the immersion and the interactivity that's really making them so exciting for people. I agree with you that for Pandora, the world of Avatar, even if you don't know the movies, you go there and you're dazzled by what you see because you, you don't know necessarily what it is, but you are in this, this spectacular other world. But having seen the movie really supercharges that and enhances it and creates that emotional connection that you don't necessarily get if you don't know the IP. So they can work individually, but they work best when they're hand in hand. So talking, you just were mentioning it, Harry Potter is for me a great example. I mean, it's beautifully done in the Universal Park. You're completely immersed into the story world with the architectures of the building. But looking on touring shows, I think that in location-based entertainment, um, it really works just with, I think, big established brand and IPs. As you see, Harry Potter is a worldwide hit, also by the traveling uh, shows and experience and uh, concerts they're doing. How would you differentiate a, an IP in a theme park and an IP outside a theme park? Do you think it differs to, um, like, is it better to have one outside a theme park than in a theme park? Or what is your take on that? Well, the two experiences really complement each other. And Harry Potter is a great example. So as you mentioned, there are the lands at the theme parks, which are very immersive and very successful and also very expensive to build. They also have the behind-the-scenes attraction in, outside of London that I mentioned, which is also big, but a much less expensive attraction to create, but also appeals to a different level of fandom. Then there are hundreds of millions of people who will not make it to these theme parks. And so to be able to go to the touring attractions, um, which they're now doing several of around the world, there's uh, one in New York, one is coming to Macau, uh, one is in Europe, is exposing uh, that IP and allowing those audiences to have a Harry Potter experience that they couldn't necessarily have otherwise. So I think there's really an opportunity for there to be different tiers and for the super fan, they'll want to see all of them. But for all of the people who can't go to those giant ones to be able to have something come to their city is very meaningful. And I think we're going to see more and more of this as we're seeing, for example, you know, I worked on an avatar attraction that's in Singapore. We, they just had their 2 millionth visitor. It's been a very successful attraction just in one year. You see the Jurassic World experiences that are around the world with these giant, incredibly lifelike animatronic dinosaurs. And those were the kinds of things that people couldn't see in their hometown previously. And now technology has really allowed us to bring these smaller, mid-sized experiences around the world. So 
and people can have these fantastic experiences where they live, then may then encourage them to also go to the theme parks for the bigger experience. I mean, a lot of um, brands are just talking about location-based entertainment venues. I mean, we heard Universal has announced something. Um, I did read about Sony close to Chicago. I don't know if that's already opened. So what do you think, like, what role do the majors play in the location-based market? And um, how do they look like the location-based entertainment venues of the future? Well, in terms of the majors, we're certainly seeing all of the studios and giant rights holders from Crayola, Mattel, etc., uh, Hasbro, looking at great IP experiences around the world that, that focus on their various properties. You mentioned a couple that Uh, studios are looking at. There's also like Lionsgate Entertainment World in uh, Zhuhai in China. And a number of these projects are in development around the world. So various IP holders are experimenting uh, with different kinds of attractions. And I think we're going to see a lot of exciting attractions around the world in coming years. But we're also going to see ones that have no IP You know, you look at something like the rise of competitive socializing, where companies have taken experiences that have been around for years, like mini golf or darts or axe throwing, um, the, and turn them into social experiences that people go and do with their friends that incorporate technology, drinking, eating, and uh, people have a great time doing them. So... People have become really innovative and there's a lot of money going into this business and a lot of creativity going into this business. And I think it's only going to grow. And um, where are you going to take place, those uh, entertainment venues? Do you think you see them close to shopping malls? Like you know, in Germany, a lot of people talking about you have to be with your entertainment center in a shopping mall because the people are already coming there. Or do you think it's uh, contradictory to be next to a shopping mall? I Well, I certainly see a lot of these in malls, and part of the reason for that is that's where uh, the foot traffic is. I just went to a mall in Lisbon, Portugal a couple of weeks ago, and they have the only Marvel escape rooms in the world are there. There's a zero latency VR experience there. So certainly malls are also looking for these kinds of entertainment experiences to draw people in, and those experiences can also benefit uh, from that kind of foot traffic. We're also seeing things like Area 15 in Vegas, which is a custom-built entertainment district that right now, uh, the initial building is over 200,000 square feet. It has a Meow Wolf. It has a number of the kinds of things that we were talking about and some new attractions that we haven't seen anywhere else. That is expanding. Certainly, you've seen the announcement that Universal is going to bring a year-round horror attraction there. There's a lot of thought about what kind of custom-built entertainment destinations we can have that will attract large audiences, but having them completely isolated on their own, it's hard to get that awareness and get that traffic. So it's helpful to have it adjacent to something that's going to bring in that audience. I know we could talk for hours and hours about um, the thing we love to do, theme parks and location-based uh, attractions. Uh, and I have asked you uh, certainly a lot of questions. Um, I'm always um, asking my guests on my podcast if you want like to ask me a question in return. You own and operate one of the greatest theme parks and water parks on Earth. 
and you've been on the cutting edge of entertainment technology for years. So what would you like to do next in this field that you haven't done yet? That's a good question. I, I, I Obviously, quality has always been our main DNA, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my head in, um, and maybe I'm going to give you a call right after this podcast. Maybe you can help me on that one. Um, how can we transport that quality around the world? Because um, our motto for over the years was always a family member has to be at the park always to check on the quality to be there, to be great host, to um, literally, like Walt Disney once stated, um, shake every visitor's hand by living at the park. And um, I think that's the DNA what makes Europa Park so special. And I don't know how much this feeling can be transported around the world without being there in person. So I think um, we don't have that expertise, which uh, you certainly have more than we do what it needs to be successful around the world. And um, if I have a dream and if I could think big, I would love to have, um, whether it's be our Adventure Club of Europe IP being played around the world. I mean, we, we were pretty good in roller coasters to have at least on every continent of the world a Magride roller coaster. But when it comes to location-based, uh, maybe also operated experience through the Mac family, I think we have to find a a system or the right persons to help us to um, grow steadily but globally. And so my dream would certainly uh, to be around the world with our IPs. And um, yeah, I think that's one of my biggest dreams when it comes to the theme park industry or to my further life path. Excellent. I look forward to it. As always, my last question is now for you. Seven years from now. What will be the world look like in seven years' time regarding location-based experiences? Will we still enjoy these attractions the same way that we are doing it today? Well, many types of attractions, interestingly enough, have not changed much in the past 50 years. For example, theme parks have gotten more advanced, but the experience is similar in principle to what it was when I was a kid. I just mentioned traditional entertainment like bowling and mini golf and bingo, and all of these have been reinvented with new attractions that are essentially updates on these classic games. So I think we will still go out with family and friends like we do today, but there will be new categories, just as we have seen with uh, escape rooms or immersive art experiences that have launched around the world over the past decade. It's a very exciting time to be in this business. Thank you so much, Mike, for being my guest today. It has been most insightful to learn more about your valuable insights into the exciting world of location-based experience and theme parks attraction. It was truly great talking to you today. Well, thank you for having me, and, and thank you for everything you do for this industry. You inspire me. Thank you for all listeners today. Please tune in next time again to uncover more of what the world of tomorrow holds. Michael Mack presents... The world beyond. Emotion is of tomorrow. A Mac One production.